Welcome to the We Need to Talk About Whiteness podcast. I'm your host, Miriam Francois, and to all of our listeners, thank you for joining us. This is a space where we explore the meaning of whiteness in the context of conversations around race and racism, and as the structure pertains to different areas of our lives. Why whiteness? Well, very simply, because as someone racialized as white myself, I want to explore the meaning and impact of whiteness at our current juncture. What does whiteness mean and does it matter? Every episode, I'm joined by a guest who offers unique insights into these questions and many more. Today, I'm joined by the French critical psychologist, feminist, therapist, equality consultant, and award-nominated writer of the blog Race Reflections, Guylaine Kinwani. Guylaine Kinwani's recent book, Living While Black, The Essential Guide to Overcoming Racial Trauma, draws on her over 15 years of experience in psychotherapy and as an anti-racist educator in laying out therapeutic advice on how to understand and hopefully counter anti-black racism. Today, she joins me to discuss racial trauma, whiteness in therapy, and what she's learned over all those years in therapy sessions. Uh, Guylaine Kinwani, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Miriam. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much. Um, well, first off, I wanted to ask for those who aren't familiar with the term critical psychologist, what distinguishes a psychologist from a critical psychologist? Okay, so different things, but what I would say really um, the core of critical uh, thinking is the idea of seeing, of unpacking structures of power. And so within psychology, it means thinking about how those structures of power influence wellness, well-being, how we interrelate, um, how we operate in the world, but also things to do with health and, and mental health. So always centering power and structures of power. This is what I would call uh, what, a structure, what a critical psychologist aims to do. Fantastic, thank you. So you, obviously the book talks about overcoming, the title even references the idea of overcoming racial trauma. Now, to some people that will be obvious what that refers to, to some people it won't be. Can you help us understand what does the term racial trauma mean? Okay, so that is another big question, but if I had to try to give a, maybe a working definition, I would say that racial trauma is simply uh, the harm, the pain, the unsafeness that arise out of being exposed to white supremacy um, or uh, racism. So it's the harm, it's the pain, it's the distress, it's the physical or the mental health consequences uh, on the individual, but also at collective level um, that comes about because of racism and because of white supremacy. Um, And look, the book opens with the line, racism causes harm, harm to the body, harm to the mind. And yet it's only in November 2020 that the American Medical Association recognized racism as an urgent threat to public health. Why do you think it's taken so long for the harm of racism to public health to be recognized? One, 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 one response may be racism and, and because whiteness being the kind of default um, experience, there has been a maybe perhaps willing um, ignorance when it comes to recognizing and to seeing oneself and the impact of the system that one has created on the other. Uh, So there's been a lot of, um, well, some people might call it white ignorance. There's been a lot of reluctance, resistance to addressing uh, racism, partly because we don't want to accept it as an entity, as a thing, as um, as a process that is in existence. So if we can't accept that something is in existence, then how can we accept then that this something causes harm? 
Um, and you say in the book, you've carved out your practices out of the whiteness of psychology and psychotherapy. So can you give us maybe an insight into what whiteness looks like in your field? Um, so whiteness primarily, I would say, looks like in the field of psychology, where essentially where I've studied in the main clinical counseling um, uh, psychology, I would say it's an absence first and foremost. It's the absence of thinking um, about whiteness and about racism. It's also the very uh, subtle ways that people want to speak about their experience of racism. People will report to services experience of racism are uh, either marginalized, often pathologized, and experience routine violence because services are not configured to hear or are not perhaps uh, willing, in many cases, uh, uh, willing to hear those, those experiences. And so um, this is also how whiteness comes about. The final thing I would say is um, perhaps a bit more ideological, perhaps a bit more epistemic, and we're thinking here about the origin of um, some of the theories that we use and the worldview um, and the, the, the kind of belief systems that they, um, that they propagate without interrogation. So three ways, I guess, to think about whiteness within psychology. Thank you, that's, that's so helpful. And you say the erasure of the impact of injustice within mental health frameworks is another failing that serves whiteness. I'm just wondering if we can unpack that. So firstly, the idea that there is a failure to recognize the injustice of racism, the denial, which you've just mentioned as being one facet of the field. So the erasure of the impact of the injustice, um, how does that serve whiteness? Well, it serves whiteness because it means that systems and individuals who commit uh, whiteness-related harm and racism are not held to account. It serves whiteness because it normalizes this um, this this violence. Uh, it serves whiteness because it leaves people vulnerable in terms of their mental health. And if they are vulnerable, then they are even worse um, off when it comes to being equipped to when it comes to uh, confronting some of the challenge that they are going to 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 face. Um, and so I, I would I would describe that as a form of violence, because if essentially our raison d'être is really to support the well-being and the wellness of people, but we're saying that there is this area of your life, of your lived experience, um, of your history that we are not interested in, and those experiences for many people, I wouldn't say for everyone all of the time, but certainly for many people. I would say the overwhelming majority of people, they are um, instrumental in terms of how they navigate the world. Um, and if we can't support them, then we are defunct. We are um, unfit for purpose for those particular communities and for those particular groups. Would you go so far as to say that the current psychological services available to people of color in this country are failing them? I'd say so. I've, I've, I've written. That's got me in a lot of trouble, <laughs> but I have. I have said so. I have. I have written so. I, I have even, as part of my, um, as as part of my research, um, argued that not only it is uh, not appropriate in many cases, it is actually harmful. Um, so that's not everyone everywhere in every services that exist in the country. But I would say it's more likely to harm. Than to do um, than to do good overall when it comes to um, experiences of of race um, oppression difference injustice. And you give some really moving and uh, concrete examples in the book of the harm that we're talking about here. And I want to talk about whiteness and mental health. You write about a young man who you call Mike, whose interaction with the police led him to be sectioned like many young black men. According to NHS data, black people in the UK have a detention rate of four times higher than that of white people. And the charity Mind have raised concerns over the disproportionate proportionate number of people from black and minority ethnic backgrounds detained under the mental 
Health Act. What is going on here? Well, I wish we could uh, we could summarize this in one or two sentences. What's going on is multiple failings, uh, multiple failing over many, many decades. Those are not new findings. We've known that for 30, 40 years, possibly even half a century, uh, because the UK, thank, thank, uh, thank God, is amongst the, the country in the world that leads in terms of this data collection and analysis. So we've known these inequalities for um, the best part of half a century at least. Uh, so what's going on is back to um, the invisibility of whiteness. What's going on is also um, I guess structural racism as part of this invisibility um, and uh, the construction, I would say the colonial construction of blackness and what it means to inhabit certain bodies in, in this society and, and, and how you can be perceived and how those perception can then engender um, um, visual, vicious cycles of, um, of violence and, and harm. And so in the case of Mike, in this particular situation, this is the example of somebody experiencing um, mental health, forms of mental health distress, psychological distress, which is what, misdiagnosed? Mm-hmm. Well, I, I, the, the, the question of, di- of, mix, um, of misdiagnosis is an interesting one, um, because if I was to argue the case that there is misdiagnosis, which is a case that has been argued many, many times, it would imply that I saw I, I sign up to this idea of diagnosis to start with. Um, but if you know um, enough about my, my, my thinking, you would know that I'm not a great adept of the medical model to start with. Um, and so I tend not to make the case for misdiagnosis as the way to um, tackle those inequalities, I think what we need to think perhaps a bit more complexly is the impact of injustice, number one, and how whiteness is normalized within uh, mental health practices. And that includes the way that we diagnose. And so therefore, how thinking around, say, colonial um, logics, how thinking around aggression, our stereotypes, um, how thinking around what it means to be um, adapted, adjusted, what it means to be um, psychologically uh, mature, essentially often reproduce the status quo and reproduce whiteness. Now, this is where I would want to go rather than to say black people, brown people, women are misdiagnosed and should be diagnosed something else. That is really not my line of argument in the main. And yeah, I mean, to, to continue on that, you say in the book that you prefer the term psychological distress or suffering, right? That you think that that's a more useful term than the medicalized terminology that we currently use, which you describe as reductive and Eurocentric. Um, can you tell us more about why you prefer this non-medicalized recognition of suffering? Uh, for, for, for various reasons, I think one of the reasons is an extension of what I've just said is that it opened up uh, theoretically, I would say, the door to think about human experiences using various lens. One lens might be, uh, you know, biomedical and using the, uh, you know, psychiatric nosology or psychiatric uh, categorization. That's fine if that is what um, that is what helps you make sense of your experience. It has its cons, um, of course, uh, sociopolitically. But if we if we expand the way that we think about human experience, then that allows us as well to bring into the conversation other ways of thinking about the world. So therefore, different worldview and different cultural. Um, belief systems um, that allows us to think about the impact of uh, history, the impact of sociopolitical um, positioning. But if we think very strictly medically, then our thinking is going to be really individualistic and it's going to be centered on what happened in people's mind or within within people's brain. I know this view is, is a little bit more complex and of course people who are adept of 
um, the medical model would say, no, 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 we can take a bio, so-called biopsychosocial model. Well, I would disagree because overall, the discourses are very much individualistic. Um, and so this is a, this is a, um, a major drawback. So when we think about suffering, when we think about distress, yes, we can talk um, as part of that, we can have a conversation around um, psychiatric diagnosis and psychological so-called disorders, if that is the language and that is the framework that we want to use, bearing in mind that we want to use any framework with you know, uh, critical lenses, but we can also think about ontological wounds, what it means actually to live in the world when one is constantly told that they don't belong, that they are other, that they are inferior. It also means that we can bring into the equation issues of transgenerational or intergenerational um, suffering, pain, trauma, which tend to be kind of cast aside. So certainly the most, um, the broader historical event tend to be cast aside in this country when we think about mental health problems. But it also means that we can bring issues to do with spirituality and, and the soul and what it means to actually embody um, everybody that feels connected, including connected to the environment, but also connected to a greater, greater good or to a greater being. And if we speak only medically, all that goes out the window and that's not helpful for um, a lot of people of color. Yeah, and that, that so that makes a lot of sense. So um, it also sounds like the medical diagnosis uh, can end up being a denial of the validity of non-neuro uh, enlightenment worldviews, which, you know, discount, say, the existence of God or of a higher power as a valid or um, logical or acceptable framework of belief, but I guess also can serve as a, a, as a denial of the role that whiteness continues to play. So it sounds almost like the medical diagnosis itself is a form of denial in some cases of the harm that whiteness is actually causing. Is it obfuscating our view of the harm? I, I would say, I would say so. I think this is an argument that I've been doing for some time, the kind of ontological and epistemological violence that is done when one adopts those belief systems blindly and, and uncritically, it is absolutely the case. Certainly, I would argue that it is a form of um, epistemic violence and injustice that is done onto other belief systems. If I go onto mental health services and I say, that's part of the reason why I am um, feeling the way that I feel, and maybe I'm feeling low, I'm feeling anxious, is because I, you know, I'm the only black person in position of seniority within my, within my organization, or maybe I'm the only Muslim person, or maybe I've been, I've been experiencing racial harassment from my neighbors, um, but the systems that we use discount those experiences as valid mm. in relation to um, psychological distress, in relation to um, so-called psychiatric um, disorder, then what does that say to those people who have those experience? It makes them mad twice. Right. So they're mad because of what they're experiencing in the world, which is then acting um, um, as a form of, of assault on their on their psyche. But then they come to the services and services tell them actually you mad for feeling mad. Mm -hmm. And so there is this double uh, kind of alienation that we normalize and, and that continues to, to happen. And um, you yeah, this reminds me of a section in your book, actually, where you say that um, in the field, many health professionals still believe politics be belongs outside the therapy room, um, which is presumably what, what we're talking about here. Um, the idea that um, you that the, the whiteness of that position, you say, is still to be accepted as fact, let alone as a problem. Um, and these are so the people who are uh, analyzing our minds, if those individuals aren't recognizing the existence of whiteness and the impact of racism, that they can actually be compounding the 
impact of the very issues that they're there to assist in resolving. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. These issues, of course, are related to racism, and often they are. Sometimes they are not, but yeah. often uh, racism is at least a factor when it comes to um, the lived experience of psychological distress. So absolutely, so that is a compounding of the harm, as you say. But I would say I would go further. I would say that it's a form of complicity. Mm. It's a form of um, a strategy that allows a violent system to essentially be off the hook. Mm. And um, let's talk about uh, trauma, because we touched on it initially in this idea that it's you know only just recently being recognized as a public health issue. Um, and in the book, you talk a lot about the impact of trauma on our bodies, on our mind, that, um, you know, trauma can literally change your brain. Um, you know, and I, something I, I didn't really know that studies in neuroscience uh, are highlighting uh, the effects of racist trauma. Can you tell us a bit more about the sort of physiological and uh, psychological harm that you've seen through your work? Okay, so let's start with the, the, the more physiological effect. I think something that can surprise um, people is that when you are the receiving end of uh, marginalization of any kind, so racism being one kind of marginalization, of exclusion, uh, your body is going to respond to those experiences um, as it would respond to any stress. Uh, related or based experience. And people have struggled understanding that fundamentally we are social beings. Um, fundamentally, we are configured, we are designed to feel um, a sense of kinship. We are designed to feel um, a sense of belonging, of attachment, um, of bond. And so it's not coincidental that one of the most practiced form of, of torture is to isolate people yeah. because it does it does um, um, as harm. So if we think about um, exclusion and marginalization as a form of torture, then we can start to understand what that might mean for people who are at the receiving end um, of those uh, of those practice. And so physiologically, you would expect the same response. That you would that you would expect um, from anyone who was undergoing um, physical torture or violence, right? It's a continuum, but nonetheless, it qualitatively it is the same response. So you get mm -hmm. essentially the, the the part of the brain that are designed to pick up dangers, to make us alert, um, and to trigger stress responses um, that are often you know facilitated or mediated by via fear center in our brain gets activated and so that can have a profound impact on on our what we call our executive functioning right so these are the function at the part the, 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 the front part of the of the brain which is sometimes referred to as the prefrontal cortex and when this part gets a little bit messed up with gets a little bit um, disinhibited, it makes it very difficult, uh, sorry, inhibited. It makes it difficult for us to think, to concentrate, um, to use the finer cognitive skills that are going to be necessary for us actually to get ourselves out of trouble. So you can start to understand how we are penalized twice. You're penalized because you're experiencing the violence that you're experiencing in a particular context, but actually physiologically, cerebrally, if you don't do anything, then it becomes really hard to um, to put your case forward, to try to defend yourself because you activate it. Um, and so people look at you and they think, here we are, we have an irrational person. Or what one thing that I see often at work, particularly in work dispute, is the person, someone gets accused of uh, poor performance, right? And if you have a conversation, with that uh, student or with that um, employee, you find that they're experiencing often discrimination and their experience is one of marginalization. And so you can see that their cognitive skills, their capacity to feel safe. And if we can't feel safe, then we can't really think adequately is compromised. And so rather than the institution thinking about 
what's happening to this person to be making the kind of mistake, what's happening to this person to actually having difficulty, maybe remembering, concentrating, focusing. It's used as evidence um, of poor performance or that the person doesn't fit in. And so usually the person is then kind of um, essentially barred from the workplace or excluded or disciplined away because there isn't that, um, that understanding. And so what it means is that the workplace remains unchanged, but the person who lives, which might, we might even say that the scapegoat is usually um, damaged in some way. And so this is where often I am left to have to pick up the pieces in the work that I do. So understanding the basic physiology of stress, what stress does to our body, what stress means in relation to our functioning is absolutely central for resisting the harm of, um, of, of white supremacy, but also for white people who want to understand why um, people activated. Um, and they want to understand why it is dehumanizing when we say that tone policing someone when they are trying to speak of their experience of oppression is dehumanizing. It's helpful to understand a little bit of the physiology of stress um, and a little bit about, you know, what different brain uh, functions serve. It reminds me when I'm uh, listening to you a little bit around, I don't know if you see similarities with hysteria in women and how mm -hmm. women were historically, when, when we raised issues of concern, branded hysterical, which obviously would then make you even more angry and then you were definitely hysterical and then you definitely had to be sectioned or, you know, cordoned off or sent, sent up to the yellow room, depending on uh, yeah. what social strata you were from. Um, well, on the subject of that particular harm, I wanted to talk about a, a subject which is a very important one right now. It's a very lively issue here in the UK, and that's the question of stop and search. You talk about it in the book, and I want to talk about the harm that you reference that stop and search causes to the mental health of young black men. Um, here in the UK right now, the, the government, uh, under its beating crime plan, there's been a permanent relaxation of conditions on the use of Section 60 stop and search powers under which officers can search anyone without suspicion that they're carrying a weapon or drugs in an area where serious violence is expected. Across all stop and search powers, black people are nine times more likely to be stopped than white people, and the rate is even higher 18 times for section 60. In the book, you talk about the impact of stop and search on mm -hmm. mental health. Can mm -hmm. you tell us a bit more about that, um, particularly right now when it seems like those powers are being extended and some of the concerns that have been raised by black communities in particular around the impact of this on young black men haven't clearly been heard? Okay, so first of all, in relation to the statistic, I think it's very important that people remember that when we talk about nine times more likely, it is a, a mean figure. Um, because there are some area in the country where we're talking, I think, up to 32 times, if I remember the data correctly, uh, 32 times. So nine times overall in the country, all figure confounded. But in some area, nine times is absolutely not representative. And we're talking about absurd figures like 15, 20, 25, 30 times, if I remember correctly. So that is important to, um, to bear in mind when we're talking about the impact of what that would mean um, for people at the receiving end of this disproportionate scrutiny, uh, state sanctioned scrutiny. What I would say is that in my own work, when I started up as a mental health professional, working with black people it was just so just so happened that um people that i worked with in the main were black men uh it could have been black women because i started working up uh, working um with um with people of color so so a lot of black people but nonetheless disproportionately black men um and so all the people that i worked with had had disproportionate um 
experience of dealing with the police. Of course, we know that we have the data in terms of black people being more likely to access mental health services through the police, but also they've had adverse experience with the police. And so this is really what made me interested in thinking about what's going on here, that we can do that, we can justify that, uh, you know, on dodgy ground, I would argue, nonetheless, we can justify that and not think about what it means. The conversation often when we are thinking about disproportionate rates of stop and search um, and police scrutiny has been around community relations, what it means in relation to trust at group level, what it means in relation to engaging black people um, uh, with the police. But what we haven't been talking about, certainly not talking sufficiently about in this country, is what it means in relation to psychological um, well-being, what it means in relation to mental health, particularly for the more vulnerable people. And surprise, surprise, the people who are more likely to be stop and search are also the more vulnerable people, because we know that stop and search happens disproportionately within poorer area, within inner city area. So those are the areas that are already red flags in relation to mental health and psychological well-being because of, um, well, um, social determinants of health and all the inequalities um, that those areas have to deal with um, uh, fundamentally. But nonetheless, if we start thinking about, so what does that mean? Then that adds an important tool, important context to the conversation to think about is the impact really worth the mean by which we say that we want to prevent? What is it that we are preventing if the end is that we are dealing with populations that are going to be rendered more vulnerable and the bulk of those people are going to then have some form of mental health system, which then society has to pick up the cost. So, you know, it starts to complicate the picture when it comes to thinking around the ethics of those practices. Mm, absolutely. And it's interesting because I, before you, reading it in your book, I hadn't really saw anywhere discussing the impact of mental health on young people um, due to this over-policing through stop and search. And of course, right now, um, it's an issue that's that's being hotly, hotly discussed. Um, I want to uh, talk to you about the TED Talk uh, research that you did. So you did a, a TEDx talk a few years ago um, and you did a poll before that uh, talk, which uh, in which you found that covert racism was seven times more challenging for respondents to deal with than over racism. Now, firstly, for those who might not be familiar with what that distinction means, maybe you can clarify. But also, I think there'll be a lot of people who are surprised by the idea that actually covert racism can be uh, harder for respondents um, to deal with or that they find it more challenging. So can you help us unpick that particular mm -hmm. finding? Okay, so the distinction is really, um, I would say, quite straightforward without getting into technical uh, language. When we're talking about overt racism, we're talking about racism that is quite clear, unequivocal. Someone calls you, um, you know, a race, racist term or someone refuses service and they say quite plainly that they won't serve you because of the color of your skin or because of your ethnic or racial origin. Those we would call fairly overt. There is no doubt around what has happened and the motivation. When we are talking about those covert acts, we're talking about acts that can be more easily um, disguised, that acts that are perhaps a bit more subtle, that act, therefore, that are often open to various uh, interpretations, and so therefore act that can be denied. So, for example, being followed up in a store and someone um, kind of saying, you are following me, and they can easily say, actually, I wasn't following you. It's just completely coincidental. Or if you said, um, you know, you, you are following me because I am, I, am, I am black, they would say, absolutely not. I'm not following you because you're black. Uh, I'm just following you because of your age range or because the way that you dress. I mean, we're talking about those kind of acts that can 
for some people uh, leads um, lead to deniability, issues of deniability. So this is a good way to think about overt and covert uh, discrimination or overt and covert racism. Um, so in relation to the research, this was a finding that surprised me as well to some degree. I expected covert racism to be more distressing, but I didn't expect it to be that much more. I thought people would say maybe twice or three times. I didn't expect that statistically it would be seven times, certainly for that particular sample. Um, the reason why I think um, racism that is more covert is more distressing is because of the cognitive work, is because of the internal work that we have to do to try um, and trust our experience. So often we have to spend a lot of time replaying the event in our minds, um, trying to actually um, put under the microscope what was said, how we responded, so that we can arrive at um, a sense of certainty. But of course that certainty is something that is elusive when we're talking about covert racism. So you can imagine how people spend hours and hours and hours in their mind trying to decide was that racist or not. Um, whereas with more um, overt manifestation, they can just see it for what it is, get hurt, deal with the hurt, grieve. The process might last maybe a few hours, maybe a few days. But in the case of covert racism, and it's not unusual that people spend months and months and years still wondering whether this was racist or not, and therefore then come to a sense of open gaslighting themselves. And it is that additional work and the process of distancing ourselves or alienating ourselves from our lived reality that caused that additional uh, psychological burden and why it is often more, more, more harmful, I would say, certainly more hurtful for people at the receiving end of it. Mm. Um, thank you for that. I, I wanted to ask you before um, uh, we, we go to the quick fire round, um, two, two last things, if I may. One was about um, the, we've had several uh, previous contributors talk to us about the psychosis of whiteness. And I am really interested in the ways in which, uh, and you talk about the diversity industrial complex in your book, the big push to talk about, you know, unconscious biases. And I put those in inverted brackets because in the book, you're, you're very uh, critical of, of the terms usage, I think in um, companies now. Um, do you think that the, that some of the work of what we're going to call the diversity industrial complex um, is, is it actually in any way dismantling whiteness and could it be strengthening it in some ways? Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking particularly through uh, the deniability factor that's available once people have ticked off the courses that they've done or companies can you know, mark off that they've, they've, all of their staff have now completed these training programs? Mm -hmm. I, I speak a little bit um, about that in some of the courses that I run and in my second book that should be out next year. And so I talk a little bit about um, unconscious bias and the problems with, with um, the framework. So let me be clear that as a fairly analytically minded psychologist, what I am not saying is that racism is not reproduced at some level unconsciously, because that would be really a health and a helpful claim to make. The second thing is that it's important that we make a distinction between what I tend to prefer to call implicit bias. Uh, than the expression, the standard expression that we use, which is unconscious bias. Because for me, unconscious as, again, from um, a more uh, psychoanalytic or group analytic perspective, really speak to something um, specific. When we are talking about the unconscious, we're talking about this kind of a repository or repertoire, um, sorry, reservoir of those aspects of ourselves or the world or others that are too painful, difficult, threatening to us to confront directly. When we are talking about unconscious bias, that is really not in the main what we are talking about. What we are talking about, we're talking about those cognitive shortcuts. So our 
how our mind has been designed to essentially cut corners to arrive at decision, to make quick decision. And part of this decision making process is overgeneralizing, is association. And therefore, some of the decisions that we make, if we make them on those shortcuts, necessarily are going to be incorrect, right? So it's important, I think, that we make the distinction when we're thinking about whiteness, because I think that even though those cognitive shortcuts are engaged, it is not the primary way by which whiteness get reproduced. By and large, whiteness get reproduced because as a society, as a group, we find it really difficult to contemplate some of the atrocities, to contemplate some of our complicity and to, to, to contemplate the harm that, that does to other people. So that we're getting into the more analytic way to think about um, about whiteness. So if we're thinking that uh, unconscious bias is designed to only essentially address what we call cognitive heuristics, that is really limiting in relation to understanding what happened uh, in the workplace within institution and um, within society at large. So that's the first point. The second point, I guess, is to think about what function is being served by those training. And I'm not the only one. I mean, sociologists and critical thinkers have been really, really at it when it comes to thinking about the harm that those courses do. You know, the fact that they are completely invisible to power. So usually the story when you leave those courses is that, well, we are, we are all biased all have a little bit of bias. And so that really invisibilized hate history and be power in, rela in relation to our capacity to do harm, right? If the cleaner is biased, it's not the same risk than if the head of HR is biased. So it's important that we remember this distinction um, in, in society. And some people have said that, you know, unconscious bias is also a way to coddle to whiteness and to white fragility, because then we can say to white people, do not worry, you didn't mean it. We all have a little bit of bias. We all have a bit of unconscious bias. And that's what we're dealing with. And so some people, of course, are saying that this is this is part of the equation. Um, that's partly why it is popular, particularly popular to, with white people. If you ask black and brown people, they tend to be a bit more critical of, of unconscious bias framework. Um, but I mean, overall, there's been lots of lots of debates, lots of critique in relation to, um, to unconscious bias. Now, where some people might be listening and thinking, so what do we do? Does that mean that we completely forget about unconscious bias? Does that mean that there is no such thing as um, unconscious bias? No, that's not what it means. There are some serious methodological questions. There are some serious empirical limitations when it comes to uh, the effectiveness unfortunately of those courses um, and and part of those limitations is because often unconscious bias uh, courses are used to try to tackle explicit uh, or conscious bias that's not what they are designed to do right if i believe that if i believe that uh, you know black people are less intelligent there's no point in making me sit in unconscious bias this is not an unconscious belief it's quite clear it's an explicit belief and unconscious bias framework and not designed to, to, to do that. But for me, overall, the limitation is that it's very back to individualistic, it's very Eurocentric. Um, and while the psychologists and the sociologists are at it, because the, the sociologists tend to say to the psychologists, well, you are just looking at one level. And so you are essentializing. And so you are reduction, you are reduction. Um, uh, behavior or dynamics to the individual. Uh, but that critique also goes to the way of uh, sociologists who only stay at one level. And so I find that psychologists can be, usually I find, they can be a little bit shy to take on the sociologist, right? Usually you would find that the critique tend to be from the, um, from the sociologist to the psychologist. I mean, sometimes like the psychologist was used, would use the more empirist and, and positivistic sort of really research 
to say, well, you're not really tight on your theory. They use that. But usually they kind of go quiet. If you want to silence a psychologist, just say you are a reductionist. And then they tend to go. But I say that to the sociologist as well, because essentially we are talking about levels of analysis. If we decide to stay at the macro uh, level, structures, society, institutions, it's still one level. It is as reductionist as if I said, I'm going to look at the individual psyche and interrelation between people, one level, right? So the, 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 um, the criticism is valid in both directions, even though it tends to be made from the psychologist, from the sociologist to the psychologist. What I'm more interested is how the two levels intersect, right. how they interrelate and how they give us the society that we have. Um, so that we're getting into more psychosocial um, study and maybe a bit more psychoanalytic and group analytic thinking. But that's where I'm at. So what I'm saying is that, no, don't lose that. But what I'm saying is that we need to expand okay. the way that we think about inequality. We need to take things away from the individual, but still bearing the individual in mind because we do bring something in terms of our personalities, in terms of our personal histories, in terms of our temperament, you know, all those things, it's its completely fallacious to say that it has no bearing whatsoever. Mm. That is not helpful. So for people who might be skeptical and say, well, you can't challenge, you know, whiteness, racism, they can't be tackled within the workplace. Would you say that they can, but that's just part of a wider uh, picture of unpicking and challenging those structures um i ask this because i i suppose if depending like you say on who you're speaking to the psychologist or the sociologist excuse the uh, sirens in the background um perils of living on a bu busy road um you know depending on who you ask people will say well no you can't you can't tackle racism unless you tackle individual psychology and other people will say well no you can't tackle racism or you can't challenge whiteness unless you're you know, tackling the structures of society, but I guess, so you're saying it's, it has to be multi-level. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. exactly. And anyone who claims otherwise is just very simplistic in their thinking. Mm. Racism, as I, as I tend to say, is possibly the most sophisticated, the most complex uh, social systems that we have invented, really. Mm. Arguably the father of all other social systems. And so if we think that we are going to chip at it with one lens, right, with one level of analysis, um, and we can't or we don't have anything to learn from other disciplines, we're just basically wasting our time. It has to be multi-level. But also the good news is that if we take a more radical, um, more radical uh, perspective, onto thinking about whiteness um, and into thinking about all those different systems, then we see them as intersecting and we see them as interrelated and we see them as co-constitutive or mutually constitutive. Then if you work on the structure, inevitably you work on the individual. And if you work on the individual, inevitably you will be working on the structure. So it's never time wasted, but I think the most effective action is to take a multidisciplinary, multi-level, multi-lenses approach to tackling the phenomenon. But nothing that we do is time-wasted. I just think that some approach are more effective than others. Okay, that's really helpful. Thank you. Um, before we go to the quick fire round, I have to ask you about one of the references in your book. You reference one of my favorite thinkers, Franz Fanon, who was himself a, a psychiatrist. His book, uh, Black Faces, White Mask, was for me uh, a critical turning point, um, a, a profound reference. I can't urge people to read it enough. Um, his book was written during the anti-colonial struggle against France's occupation of Algeria. And I'm wondering what can his writing, in your view, continue to illuminate today when it comes to understanding the enduring impact of colonialism in sustaining whiteness in our societies? Okay, so what I would say, first of all, is that I start with Fanon, I usually end with Fanon, this is how influential he has been to my thinking. 
Um, I think he is one of the richest thinkers that we've had to help us to understand uh, not only colonialism, um, but oppression. Um, and that interface between the, um, between the individual and between the system that they inhabit. Um, and this thinking has remained with us, particularly within um, the more um, critical, the more radical thinkers when it comes to tackling not only um, racism, but also when it comes to thinking about, um, about misogyny and thinking about other systems of oppression, for example. I, I read Fanon and I see reference to, to, to the, the, the Beauvoir, for example, um, which you can see that he has been influenced by her. It's not a surprise. I mean, they were contemporaries, right? Um, and I think probably were friends. And so you can see a lot of, a lot of the thinking here that um, is, I think foundational when it comes to thinking about not only the harm of, of structure, but how the individual essentially and the structure become one and the same. Um, and, and I think he's the richest person that we have in relation to whiteness when it comes to thinking really deeply, theoretically, about what's what. And, and the reason why he's so rich is for the very reason that I've put the case forward in relation to, he brings psychoanalysis, he brings philosophy, he brings obviously psychiatry, he brings um, ex 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 existentialism into the equation um, and a little bit of indigenous thinking there and, and, and there um, spattered in places and Marxism, of course, a big one. And so this is what we need to do. We need to not be um, shy when it comes to learning from what other disciplines have to offer us. But I do think that, yes, it's for me, is the um, black skin, white mask is, is the um, is the um, the reference. Yeah, is yeah. the reference for anyone serious about whiteness. Thank you so much. All right, let's head over to our quick fire round now. So quick questions and quick answers, if you will. Um, okay. What is your definition of whiteness? Um, a structure that um, privileges people racialized as white. What is the root of racism? The root of racism is multifold, but if I have to come with one, I would say um, the process of othering others by projection. What is the most powerful way to resist whiteness? To name it. Is there such a thing as a post-racial world in your view? And is that universalist ideal ever achievable or desirable? No, no. Is whiteness a useful conceptual tool in conversations on anti-racism? It is with some limitations. Fantastic. Thank you so much, Guylaine Kinwani. Uh, if people want to connect with your work, your ideas, where should we send them? Send them to uh, racereflections.co.uk on my Twitter feed or racereflection has its own uh, handle and account. And it would be my pleasure to continue the conversation whoever, with, with whoever wants to speak. And if people want to get their hands on your fantastic new book, Living While Black, The Essential Guide to Overcoming Racial Trauma, is there a particular bookseller that you'd like to reference? I, I'm completely open. Get it wherever you can, but get it. So it's available from all um, larger bookstores, uh, W.H. Smith, Waterstone, of course, Amazon, and all the little independent bookstores who need our support. So you should be able to get it in most places. Fantastic. Uh, Guylaine Kinwani, thank you so much again for your time. Thank you to all of our listeners for tuning in to this episode of We Need to Talk About Whiteness. Please do subscribe on iTunes, Spotify or SoundCloud and join us next time for more conversations on whiteness.